good afternoon. Good afternoon. My name is Keston Blandon. I'm a psychologist and I specialize in uh, dementias. I work with individuals with dementia or just memory loss. Sometimes they don't have a diagnosis, they're just experiencing cognitive difficulties. And I work um, also with families that have a loved one that have any type of dementia or, or memory loss or myocognitive impairment. I run education programs such as this and there are more, and, and at the end of the program today, I'll tell you more about what I do here and also what we do here as a group, because there's a lot going on at the Resource Center here if you haven't been here before. Um, and I also provide one-on-one -on -one consultations with individuals and families, and my services are free um, to, to families, so you can use it once. I sometimes will talk to families many times over the years um, so sometimes people come to education programs and feel like they really want to discuss something specific that's going on in their life and, and I'm available for that. And for people that live long distance and have family members here, that's becoming more and more common. I can do a video conference meeting, I can do a phone meeting, I can meet with a family. Yeah. So okay. we can set that up as well Okay. Um, so that you know. So today's program is memory loss, brain health, and, and how we can help. And it's a really general program. This is uh, really nuts and bolts of, of Alzheimer's and dementia and the warning signs, um, what a diagnosis, a diagnostic process would look like. I'll discuss some risk factors. Um, and then we'll end with uh, general uh, lifestyle strategies for brain health. <laughs> he put the button, right? <laughs> I didn't do anything. <laughs> he did, huh? He did. Um, and then we'll we'll end up discussing lifestyle strategies for brain health, um, and all the the strategies that I'll be talking about are good for all of us, but it's also good for people that have a diagnosis as well. Um, so we ask questions. We don't have a lot of people here today, and we have plenty of time in the curriculum to, to ask questions. Even make sure that what I'm telling you is clear to you, but if you have questions about other things that I'm not talking about, you can go ahead and ask them. If I know, I'll answer. Um, and if it, if it ends up being a topic that's getting too far afield, I can just talk to you one-on-one -on -one about it after or, or at another time, okay? So, um, so feel free to, to ask questions here. So I'll just start with some of the statistics. Um, you know, we, we're hearing more and more about Alzheimer's disease and dementia in, in the media. It's really, well, I work in the field, so I'm biased, but I really think it's a public health issue of our time. I, I really do, of, of our age. Uh, so it's the most common cause of dementia among people age 65 and older, and I'll, I'll discuss more of that distinction, what I mean by that. Um, there are more than 5 million people in our country right now living with Alzheimer's disease. There is a younger onset Alzheimer's that people in their 30s and 40s and 50s get. It's the same disease process, it just happens earlier. And so in the field at the association, we make a distinction in our language between younger onset and early stage. So early stage is the, is the beginning part of the disease, and you can have that when you're younger or older. Young onset, you can be in any stage, but it, the disease process started before 60. It is pretty much how we look at that. Um, so some of the estimations that the association and others have come up with is um, 
by 2050, if we don't have a significant intervention clinically, and by that I mean drugs that can delay or prevent or slow down the process, um, it's estimated that we'll have in our country at least 15 million people living with Alzheimer's. And that's because of, have you heard of this silver tsunami? Have you heard of yeah. this term? Yeah, some people have, some haven't. In my field, we use it all the time, so I, I just assume that everyone's heard of it. But it's, it's our aging population. So the baby boomer population particularly, a couple years ago, just started to move into 65 and older. And this is a population of, of roughly 78 million people. And 95% of all cases of Alzheimer's happen in the population that's 65 and older. So that's where, and, and that's where Alzheimer's is, is such a, a public health issue, but other issues too, you know, with an aging population and, and medically and, and diseases and making sure that people stay healthy. But those are some of our dis, uh, statistics there. So let me first, I'm just gonna go through what are normal age-related changes in the brain. Mm -hmm. And then we'll move into the, the early <laughs> warning signs of, of something like Alzheimer's. And I'll go through the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia and the other dementias. So we have normal age-related changes in our memory and cognition. And the way that I um, understand this and the way that I explain it is that as we age, we have normal changes in our vision, in our hearing, in our metabolism, in our weight in our strength, our body ages, and we have symptoms of that aging. Well, our brain is a part of our body, like, like everything else, and it also ages. But the sign of a brain aging is in the mind. And so our mind slows down. And these are normal age-related changes. Um, having not, your memory's not as good as it used to be, particularly around names is, is very common. Not being able to remember where you place things sometimes, just not being as sharp <laughs> as you used to be. Um, that's all, that's normal stuff. And when we're tired or when we're stressed out or we're not feeling well, when we're ill, um, it, it becomes worse. And that's particularly true as we age. So for older adults who are very tired or stressed out or feeling ill or, or in, in some way not doing well, it will impact their brain and their mind even more than when they were younger but that impacts all of us. So those, those are normal. Um, what's really happening is that the brain is slowing down and so the, the mind slows down. Um, and it shows up not only in our memory, in our recall, but also in our ability to use strategies to, to organize and learn new information. Hi there, Hi, we just started. There's copies of the PowerPoint presentation in the back and pens if you wanna take some notes. Justin, <clears throat> is it all a matter of slowing down or is our brain getting overpacked? You mean with too much information? Yes. <laughs> I don't know, but I would say not overpacked because the the brain is an amazing, amazing organ. It, it's incredible. Now, so, sooner or later, our computers have got to be deleted, right? The stuff in the memories. Mm -hmm. we, we, we run out of space. Yeah. Is that happening here? I don't think so. But there might be some people arguing for that. I know that there are people, not necessarily on the information, that the brain is running out of space, but um, there are theories out there that the, the whole, our relationship to technology is making us not be able to think as well, that it's sort of degenerating our abilities to, to think as well for ourselves. So there's some ideas around that. 
But don't you think that's probably more true in the younger generation than in our generation? Probably. Yeah. Do you use information technology a lot? Yeah. See, so. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> no, I think you're right. So there's a distinction between Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, dementia is not actually a diagnosis, but doctors and, and clinicians like me who work in the field are often guilty of using it as though it is. Um, and the reason why is that Alzheimer's disease is the, by far the most commonly diagnosed form of dementia. So sometimes we use the words interchangeably, but that's not actually correct. So dementia is an umbrella term which indicates progressive cognitive decline. Many, many reasons someone can have dementia. Alzheimer's disease is the actual diagnosis. It's the actual form of dementia. Um, but again, I often will work with families that will come in and say, you know, my, my mother or my father um, has dementia. And I'll say, what, what diagnosis did you get? Because there's vascular dementia. There's different types of dementia. And they'll say, just dementia. So that's not uncommon. Um, but the actual diagnosis would be Alzheimer's or vascular. We'll go through the other ones. And I also want to um, be clear here about what a diagnosis means. So um, sometimes people will be confused and think, well, I, you know, I brought my spouse in to the doctor and said, you know, you need to check them out because they're having some memory problems and I think something's, something's wrong. And the doctor will give them some exams and say, well, I can't give a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. You know, there looks like there might be some memory problems, but I can't give a diagnosis. And sometimes that will confuse people where they think you either have it or you don't. And, and Alzheimer's isn't that kind of disease. It, it's it's uh, insidious, it, it's on a trajectory. So you're slowly, it, the memory and, and cognitive function is slowly degenerating. So what the doctor means is I can't clinically say that you meet the criteria at this point for Alzheimer's. And, and it may be that you, you, know, you just have some subjective memory loss and you don't have Alzheimer's and it's not gonna get worse. But sometimes that whole thing about a diagnosis can be confusing to people. So for a doctor to make a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, um, two or more cognitive functions have to have symptoms impairing daily function, your daily life. That's, that's pretty advanced. Um, Alzheimer's disease is very slow moving. We know that the pathology of Alzheimer's disease exists in the brain 10 to 20 years before symptoms. It's very slow moving in the brain. So the symptoms are as well, and we'll discuss that. When you're talking about the early symptoms of Alzheimer's, there's a big gray area there because it overlaps with all these normal age-related changes in, in cognitive function anyway. And, and it can happen so slowly. So that's the thing about a diagnosis. Um, if you have any concerns about memory or anything else, talk to your doctor about it. And if they say, well, you know, you have some, some impairment here, your diminished capacity here, but you don't have Alzheimer's, that's great. But if you're still concerned, you can go back and just to make sure, um, see if it's progressing or, or if it's staying. Would you define cognitive? Cognitive, that's of the mind, so mental. Um, so cognitive functions would be our um, ability to organize and plan, um, our memory functions, our language functions. Learning is a big one. You're referring to our general practitioner. Yes. 
Yes, that's where you would start. And I'll go through the diagnostic process, but you would all, it, it, you don't have to. You can refer yourself to the memory clinic or something like that. Um, but it, it's, it's good to start with your general practitioner if you have one that you like and you can talk to them about it. They can do a lot of initial screening of different things. And I'll go through that, what they would do, what, what you would be expecting with that. So there are different types of dementia. Um, as I said, Alzheimer's disease is by far the most commonly diagnosed, 60 to 80% of all diagnoses of dementia. And, it, and that range is so far, it, you know, 60 to 80% is quite a range. <laughs> but Alzheimer's disease often presents with the other dementias. When they do autopsy studies, they'll find that people that had a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease while they were living have Alzheimer's pathology in their brain, but, but it's not uncommon for them to have um, pathology of the other dementias as well. Hi, Sorry. there. That's okay. There's um, copies of the PowerPoint presentation in the back there in pen. Thank you. If you want to use that. And we're not too far in. Um, so that's the most commonly diagnosed. The second most commonly diagnosed form of dementia is vascular dementia. And as the name indicates, this is um, about strokes and, and blood flow in the brain. Um, vascular dementia is also sometimes um, known as multi-infarct dementia. It, it's a series of tiny strokes that are happening very deep in the brain. Um, and they're so small and they're in such a deep part of the brain that each individual stroke, the, 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 the person doesn't know it. They're not presenting symptoms like a major stroke. But each small stroke damages brain matter. And, and that will happen in a, in a certain area and when the damage is enough has built up, it'll show a cognitive symptom. So you'll start to see symptoms. That's the second most common um, type of dementia diagnosed. And it's very, it's common for Alzheimer's and vascular dementia to present together. In the, and it's called mixed dementia. Um, that's used really just clinically. I, I, I rarely meet families who are told that their loved one has mixed dementia, but it's, it's used clinically. And then there are frontotemporal dementias and Lewy body and Parkinson's dementia. These are more uncommon. The frontotemporal dementias, there's several different variants, um, but these show um, drastic, usually personality changes or very odd, strange language problems, the aphasias. Sorry, I didn't know it'd be noisy. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll talk over it, you're fine. <laughs> Uh, Lewy body disease and Parkinson's dementia are actually related. So the underlying pathology in the brain of Lewy body disease and Parkinson's dementia is the same. So let me go to the Parkinson's so you can be clear on that. There's Parkinson's disease. And that, for most people that have Parkinson's, will not develop into dementia. It will stay in the parts of the brain that just control nerve and motor function. And they have a degeneration of motor function. But in a portion of, of people that have Parkinson's disease, that pathology moves, starts to move out into the rest of the brain, and that's a progressive dementia. So again, dementia is progressive cognitive decline. And, it will, and they call that Parkinson's dementia. Now, Lewy body disease is the same physiological pathology as Parkinson's dementia that starts in, that starts in the cortex, so it starts with cognitive functions rather than motor functions. It just starts in a different part of the brain, so they're they're related. They're they're not a, they're 
considered rare. They're not um, as common. Parkinson's, Parkinson's disease is one to two percent of the population, I think. Um, I've met one person with Lee body disease that I've worked with here. They've probably met more um, in the memory clinic, but recently I was consulting with a geriatric psychiatrist at the memory clinic on a, a patient that I'm working with who has a frontotemporal dementia. And it's, I've been doing this about five or six years, and it's only the second person I've worked with, and, and he really hasn't worked with that many more either. He's in the memory clinic, so they're, they're unusual. Did you have could a question? You, yeah, could you explain the frontotemporal dementia one more time? Sure. So the, these, there's several different variants, different mm -hmm. pathologies in the brain, but they start in the temporal lobes and the frontal lobes, so their symptoms are different. So they present more with uh, personality changes, um, the, the most common one is what we call blunted affect. They, they lose their emotional engagement with other people and, and with their life. Um, so it comes across more as personality changes. And actually frontotemporal dementias are um, notorious for being very difficult to diagnose because they mimic other mental health problems and other problems. Um, and people aren't expecting that that's a dementia. You're, you're thinking more about Alzheimer's disease. Or the ones that are easier to diagnose are, are the ones that um, are in the temporal lobe and are aphasias, which is problem in language. So they will have problems identifying nouns, like really semantic oddities, yeah. or just problem receive, understanding language. They can speak, but they can't understand language. Um, okay. so, so those are, those are um, characterized by where they start in the brain. So what's different about all of these types of dementia is the underlying pathology in the brain is different and where they start is different. So they, they have different hallmark characteristic um, presenting symptoms. So Alzheimer's disease, the hallmark presenting symptom is short-term memory loss. With the frontotemporal dementia, it's personality or language. Lewy body disease, it's, it's usually motor function or hallucinations, you know, things like this. Vascular dementia can start anywhere in the brain, so that's that's um, more individual to the person. So that's what's different about them. They have different presenting symptoms. There's different underlying pathologies in the brain. But what's the same about them is that they're all dementias. They're all uh, degenerative cognitive decline. They're degenerative cognitive processes. So in my work, um, we work with all of them. and. Um, it's important to know the diagnosis, and there are some distinctions and particularities with the diagnosis, but eventually a dementia is a dementia. It, it's, it's impacting all the different cognitive functions. It will move through each particular brain differently. So some people will have language problems early. Some people will have language problems late, that type of thing. But they're all progressive decline. <clears throat> So now I'll go through the 10 warning signs of Alzheimer's and, and we'll talk here about, um, these are 10 of, of more common symptoms that people would look for, that people report, and I'm gonna be talking about these in the earlier stages, um, you know, when you're first really starting to, to notice something or, or think that something's going on. As the disease progresses, all of these type of symptoms just increase, increasingly get worse, it, they diminish. Um, and become worse. So, as I said before, short-term memory loss is the hallmark presenting symptom of Alzheimer's disease. 
This is because the disease tends to start in a, in a part of the brain. It's a tiny structure in the middle of our brain. It's called the hippocampus. And this structure encodes short-term memory. And when memories are going to be retained as long-term memories, they are sent out for storage into other parts of the brain, the cortex, which is the outer layer of the brain. And this is why someone with Alzheimer's disease can't remember this morning but remembers 30 years ago, because the access to long-term memories, once they're put out for storage, is direct. You don't need to go through the hippocampus. The hippocampus rules short-term memory. And that is where Alzheimer's disease starts, and that's the hallmark presenting symptom. Not everybody. I mean, some people it's not as noticeable. It might be other things, and we'll talk about that. So this looks like a lot of repetition of stories, repetition of questions, repetition of statements, um, not retaining a conversation that someone just had or something they just read or a news program they just watched with you. Um, maybe they went to a film or, or did something and then that evening they don't remember that they did that with you and you can tell from the way that they speak. Um, there can also be challenges with planning or solving problems. Um, this looks more like, and, and that really comes up more as the difficulty completing familiar tasks. So a typical one, uh, like a common one you hear about is the person can no longer balance the checkbook or run the budget. So they've paid the same bill twice or didn't pay a bill, you know, just things like that, that they're, they're not completing what was always familiar to them, something they could always do. And it's usually something that has to do with planning, and by that I mean that has a series of tasks that you have to do one after the other, A to B to C to D. And, and they'll have problems with that, that kind of organizing. There can be confusion with time or place. And in the earlier stages, you know, particularly if you're thinking about the 10 warning signs, this will just crop up. <coughs> you know, so the person will just be confused about where they are in a, in a situation one day or, or what time of year it is or, you know, um, that type of thing where they'll just be disoriented for a little while. And you think, well, that was odd, you know, that mom was, We've gone to the farmer's market for years every Saturday. She acted like she didn't even know where she was for a little while. Well, that was weird. You know, maybe something like that. The trouble understanding visual images or spatial relationships is a little bit more subtle. Um, we have this, you know, the association puts this on the 10 warning signs, but that's really something that you typically notice later on. Although I, I do know of one case where it was um, the problem here is what initiated the diagnosis, and I'll tell you about that. But this is the part of the brain that locates our body in space, so your spatial relationships. that understands depth perception, contrast of color, um, so that I'm not constantly knocking my glass over, my cup over. I understand how far it is, how to grasp it. If a, if a door and a wall are the same color, my visual perception understands the contrast of shadow and where the door is and where the wall is. If, if this part of the mind is breaking down, someone can have problems with that. This is a part of your brain that if I were to throw a, a toss a ball to you, this part of your brain is calculating everything about the velocity and the trajectory of the ball and you put your hand out and catch it. You, you understand your relationship of your body to things in space. So cars coming at you when you're driving, as you can imagine, this, these functions of our brain are really important when we drive, moving around the world. But these functions um, 
you typically don't know you have a problem with them until you have a problem. <laughs> you know, they, they don't show up like short-term memory loss, which we rely on constantly, every day, all day. Um, so the, the story that I have, that, um, it's actually a man who worked with some of my colleagues in Massachusetts. So Massachusetts is long, and he was on the eastern end of Massachusetts, and he was driving somewhere familiar to him. And this whole idea of the spatial maps that we carry, so he was going through an area that was familiar to him, but there had been some construction and remodeling of things, and so spatial uh, cues that his mind was used to looking for were, were removed. But he didn't pick up on that. And he drove for two hours and was lost across the state before he, he could figure out what to do. And that led to a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. But so that was where that warning sign was one of his beginning, one of his beginning ones. So in that sense, he, in that case, he um, was not able to draw on spatial maps and, and understand. And, and he had a, he became disoriented or confused. He couldn't bring his mind to bear on what do I do in this situation. So he just kept driving. Okay, and that will often be what happens when people wander and get lost. They will get disoriented as in, in whatever space they're in. So it could be something, a familiar place. A lot of people wander and get lost at home. They, they leave their house and, and, and they won't be able to figure out what to do, so they'll just keep walking straight. You know, I did some training with a local search and rescue, volunteer search and rescue team. And, um, you know, I, I told them, and, and we had a few people that had rescued people that had wandered and gotten lost who had dementia. They'll just keep walking straight. They can't come up with strategies. They, they're disoriented to place. And, and a part of that is this whole spatial relationships to things and understanding what to do. So they'll just keep walking or driving until they can't anymore. There can be problems with speaking or writing. Um, <clears throat> And that, um, that can be just not being able to access words. So this is a little bit different than the short-term memory recall where you can't remember what you did this morning or yesterday or the appointment you made for tomorrow. This is more about not being able to draw up words. So what's very common here is that people will start describing around words. And usually nouns, it's usually very common words. So for instance, someone will be talking about their daughter who went to the hospital the other day and they'll say, you know, she went to, you know, that place where people go when they're sick, that type of thing. They'll start describing around words because they're having trouble recalling words. Sometimes that can show up to just problems in language, conceptually understanding something. So I worked with a woman years ago who told me the story of she, of how she knew something was, was going on with her husband. He actually, for several months first, was quite withdrawn and didn't seem to remembering or, or paying attention to her conversation. So she just thought that they had been married for decades and that he was tired of her. <laughs> so she'd stop talking to him. <laughs> but then one night, he came out of the bathroom and he looked at her and he said, how do you know which one is hot and which one is cold? Like he, he was unable to understand the H and the C and something very common. And that's when she knew something's, something's wrong. So I'm gonna go, I'm gonna jump down to the withdrawal from work or social activities. Subtle, but that's what happened to this woman's husband. And it's more common than you know that people will get a diagnosis for Alzheimer's 
and the family will say, oh, some, but now I see that they had withdrawn and become apathetic or depressed and withdrawn from things and withdrawn from conversations before all of the you know, really pronounced short-term memory recall or, or whatever else led to the diagnosis. It's very common to, for people to be depressed or apathetic or to withdraw first. And that's what happened with this woman's husband. He just stopped talking. He stopped being as engaged in their conversations. He stopped doing things in life. And she thought, and this is what we'll do, we will readily make reasons for things and we will readily say oh the person's you know they're not interested in me anymore or they're depressed or this or that happened in their life and they just need some time alone or they just don't want to do that anymore um, so again it's not that hi there it's not that every time someone's withdrawn from something that they have Alzheimer's but just so that you know there there can be subtle clues like that and depression in in Alzheimer's disease particularly very early on before a diagnosis is becoming if we're un realizing now that it's more and more common. So something to think about. Um, poor judgment, not understanding social context. You know, a lot of our, our learning is around social context, what's appropriate and what's not. Whether it's our clothes and knowing, with looking outside and knowing that it's cold out and so you, you bundle up, right? Or the opposite, where people will bundle up in the summer, like just making that kind of judgment. But there's also just social context, so understanding um, that at a restaurant you pay a bill and you tip and that you pay the person there called the waiter. You know, just, just simple things like that. Or knowing what to say and what not to say. That's actually probably one of the more common ones. I typically, in my experience with families, don't see that as an early sign. Um, it, in Alzheimer's disease, that, that social inappropriateness or saying something that's, that's inappropriate is usually later. But with the frontotemporal dementias, that can be early. And a lot of people will see that as a personality change. Like, oh, they, they turned into a jerk, right? But it's actually a, a dementia. And the frontotemporal dementias are really hard to diagnose because of that. Um, because it, it'll, it'll come across as person, it comes across in personality changes. And then, of course, just changes in mood or personality. I just discussed that. Depression, apathy, very common. Depression and apathy are the two most common neuropsychiatric symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, and they tend to start early. Um, and then there's changes in personality, the social context, and, and things like that. Any questions or thoughts on that, on the warning signs? But there are other possible causes of dementia symptoms, of these symptoms that I've been talking about. This is not an exhaustive list, but just the fact that a list like this exists is why you should go to your doctor, and this is why going to your primary care first. Because a lot of the other things <coughs> that can cause dementia or dementia-like symptoms um, would be screened out by your doctor. That's, that's one of the first things that they'll do. Um, a brain tuber, hydroencephalus is a buildup of fluid in the brain and it will press against brain matter and cause cognitive symptoms there, you know, wherever that is. Thyroid dysfunction is known to have cognitive symptoms, um, particularly memory and, and, um, and uh, inability to really think, um, think well, executive planning. Vitamin deficiencies, particularly the B vitamins and particularly in older adults, so that you know. Older adults um, have lower B vitamins just as we age. That's just a, a part of our aging. We'll have lower 
um, amounts of the B vitamins, and, and the, they are important for cognition. So that's something your, your primary care will check out. They'll check out all of these things. Alcohol, um, and I really should put in there alcohol abuse, but just a, a long-term overuse of alcohol. Alcohol has a big effect on the brain, um, particularly over the long term. And there are types, types of dementia that are specific to alcohol abuse. Medication side effects, that's, that's more common than you know. And again, older adults are typically using more medications than younger adults, so it's something um, to think about. They can have big time side effects and particularly when they mix in together and then mix with say alcohol or mix with um, certain foods or, or things like that or if you're ill. So these are just things to think about as well as infections. So you may think that infections and dementia, <laughs> but infections, even a very simple infection in the body and particularly for older adults can have a big impact on the brain and on cognition. Um, and so they can cause delirium and dementia-like symptoms and that is not uncommon at all. Um, I worked with a woman whose, whose mother had Alzheimer's disease and she knew that she had a diagnosis but um, at, she had her at home and her mother just got really, at one point just started to get really agitated and was not doing well and had these wild fluctuations of symptoms and that went on for some time and the, the woman couldn't handle it anymore. She was alone, she didn't have any other family. And so she placed her mom into a facility and they did a, a workup on her and, and discovered that she had a urinary tract infection. And it was raging and that impacts the brain and particularly in older adults. So when they took care of that, she still had dementia. <laughs> but that makes it, made it worse, that added to the dementia symptoms. So just things like this to think about. And then depression and stress have cognitive symptoms, uh, depression particularly on memory. And the way that stress and depression work on memory, Alzheimer's disease attacks memory from starting in the hippocampus, and so it's disrupting the short-term memory encoding. So we're not encoding all of our short-term memories. So when we go to recall them, if you have Alzheimer's disease, there's nothing, there, there are blank spots, so to speak. There's nothing to recall. But with depression and stress, your hippocampus is fine. You're encoding memories. But your frontal lobes, you're not paying attention. You're withdrawn. The depression withdraws your emotional energy away and you're not being present. And the stress sort of fragments your mind where you're not being present. And if you're, what you don't focus on, you don't encode. So if you go somewhere and you're really depressed or stressed out and withdrawn or you're not able to focus and pay attention, you're not gonna have as, as good of memories. And that may come up as a, as a memory problem. So it has memory symptoms. So if you have any concerns, um, I would say start, I always say start, start with your doctor. If you have a physician, um, that you, you know, have regularly and that particularly if they know you and know your history, that's best. But start with them because they will be able to rule out all of these things. And that's a part of the diagnostic process is first to rule out everything else it could be. So you may have heard, um, some of you may have heard of this term that um, Alzheimer's disease, the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease is a diagnosis of exclusion, if you've heard that. And it's still true although it's soon, it's soon probably not going to be. Um, and what that means is that we don't today 
have a positive test in vivo, which means in the living body, so that they just take a test and yup or no. <laughs> we don't have that yet. Very, very close. We do in clinical trials, um, and it'll soon probably be in the, in the general practice. So what we have to do is we have to exclude everything else it could be. When, when you, so they'll do tests to see what cognitive functions are, are impaired and what's their level of impairment. Is it beyond normal aging? You know, because that's, again, it's normal. Um, and they'll say, could it be the thyroid? Is it a B vitamin deficiency? Do you have an infection? Um, all of that type of stuff. They'll, they'll rule out all of that. And Alzheimer's disease also has a certain characteristic onset in short-term memory loss, and it's slow, so it wouldn't be like sudden problems or, or issues. Um, they might do, and then, so when the primary care does that, gives you some mental exams and, and rules out other things, if they still have questions, then they'll probably send you to different specialists, like at our memory clinic or, or different clinics. And they'll do neurological exams where they can look at the actual brain and see what's in there. Is there a brain tumor? Is there hydroencephalus? Is there atrophy? What's going on in the brain? And the neuropsychological exams can be sort of involved, but they're important. They're a full battery of written tests and different types of tests that fully measure all of your cognitive domains, all of your different cognitive functions. So your language function, your memory function, your planning and organizing, all of that. And you get a very clear sense of where are the impairments and how bad are they? What, what are we looking for? What part of the brain is being impacted? So that's the diagnosis. Any questions on that or, or anything else so far? What does the internal MRI stand for? Oh, functional. Okay. <laughs> how much uh, does the interaction of some of these things affect uh, the severity or the growth of uh, depression, amnesia, or whatever we want to call it? What, what do you mean, the interaction of? Well, you, you, the, the blood and the urine and the alcohol and uh, mm -hmm. the medicines. Is there, a, you said there's no testing, but it has to be exclusionary. Yeah. How do you separate the, 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 All that? the factors? That's a good question. It's not, it's not so easy to do. And there are, um, some people are more complicated than others. So I have worked with families where it takes a long time to get a diagnosis. I, I worked with one woman because her husband was so complicated medically. He was um, a cancer survivor and was on cancer drugs. He um, had adult ADD and was on Ritalin. <laughs> he was depressed. He, I mean, he had like all of these different cognitive history anyways and all these different medications. Um, so it was really hard. So what they had to do was they had to um, stabilize one part and try to remove him or stabilize that and then work on, on other areas. So things like that can, be, can take a long time if you're more complicated because of the interaction of all those things. So one, one key, and this takes time, one key to Alzheimer's is that it will progress in, in a very specific fashion. Of course, it takes time, so you'd have to, so if you're very complicated, there's other things that are impacting your, your brain and your mind, um, the doctors may have to just keep testing you over time to see if certain functions are continuing to degenerate. 
because they'll degenerate in a specific way differently from alcohol abuse, differently from medications, you know, different, they'll try and intervene on these other things. So uh, uh, sometimes they have to wait for the progression to see if there's progression in trying to stabilize people. Yes? What is the test that they're working on for Alzheimer's? I mean, what, what is it testing for? You mean to do a uh, living diagnosis before yes. autopsy? So there's two. Um, and they use these all the time now in, in clinical practice. There are huge stu uh, studies going on with them now, and we'll probably see them jump soon in, into general practice. So there's two. One is to measure um, the cerebral spinal fluid. And they measure two things. And it's the two main pathologies of Alzheimer's disease. So this is going to get a little technical, but they, they measure for the amount of beta amyloid proteins in the cerebral spinal fluid. And they measure for tau, T-A-U, protein that has been, it's called phosphorylized, it's mutated. So the two main pathologies in Alzheimer's disease are plaques and tangles. What will start first in the brain, and this is 10 to 20 years before symptoms, is the buildup of beta amyloid protein that's not getting cleared out of the brain, and they're clumping, that protein is clumping together and creating these plaques. So when they measure in the cerebral spinal fluid, they're looking for a reduction of beta amyloid, and that reduction indicates that, that you, have, you have reduced beta amyloid in your cerebral spinal fluid because it's caught up in the plaques. Okay? That caught up in the plaques? So you and I have beta amyloid in our brains right now. It's yeah. a natural part of our brains. Mm -hmm. If it's caught up in the plaques, from Alzheimer's pathology starting. So it's clumping together. The beta amyloid protein is not getting cleared out of the brain, and it's not because it's not clearing, they're sticking together and clumping together. So there'll be less in the cerebral spinal fluid. And those plaques, we know. Oh, so more in the brain, less in the CSF. Yes. Okay. Yeah, they're done. And we know that these plaques start 10 to 20 years before symptoms. We know that. Um, and then they'll also check for phosphorylated or, or mutated tau protein, that comes later in the process. Um, and uh, once that, the tau protein has started to, to mutate, then they can start to track cognitive decline. So, they, so they're very interested in getting to the population that has plaques, but no symptoms. Huge research trials going on in our country on that. The second way that they're measuring this is through PET scans. So they've come up with tracers that they can inject into the body, and when it goes through the brain, it'll attach momentarily to beta amyloid, and it will light up. And so they'll see, yeah, like a Christmas tree. You should see some of the scans. And it will light up, and they'll be able to see exactly where the beta amyloid is collecting in the brain. So those they're using a lot in clinical research. So in clinical research, and there are a couple studies, one is huge at Harvard going on in Boston. If anyone's interested, they're going to start recruiting soon, and if you're, if you're interested, you can see me and, and I'll, I'll get you information. They need people that are cognitively normal. Or who thinks or, they, or or think they, they are. are. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. Bingo. Bingo. And as you can imagine, they're having problems recruiting because who wants to know? 
right? You don't have yeah. to know, so you can be in the study and not uh -huh. know, uh -huh. not get the information on whether you have beta amyloid plaque. But the thing uh -huh. is, they, they've uh -huh. developed some drugs that they think, um, well, that have shown it in other studies and they want to do it large scale. They've developed some drugs which, which can clear out or stop beta amyloid. So it can clear out the plaques or it can stop it. Uh -huh. From, from continuing to build up. And they need this, what's called this preclinical population that has the beta amyloid plaques but no symptoms to test these drugs to see if that's, they, they've done enough, we've done enough research with people that are already in the process and have a diagnosis, already have symptoms and a diagnosis, and they're having a hard time intervening there. So now that we found this preclinical population, they think that's where this disease will be will be changed. Okay? That will be able to intervene before there are cognitive symptoms, and either completely stop the disease process or significantly delay it. Do they do specific tests beforehand to find out whether you are cognitively normal? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. You'd have a full workup. They'd want to make sure that. Um, they do all the tests beforehand, but then if you did have any cognitive symptoms, they'd want to make sure that you had all the workup, that it wasn't anything, nothing else was going on with you. So I'm not sure of all the criteria of what would get someone selected in and out, um, but I can give anyone who's interested um, information on that. So there's a huge study, 3,000 people they want being done at Harvard, and there are some throughout the country. So this is this is a. Uh, the newest, hottest area in, in research that's right now holding some promise that something will, will have a breakthrough there. But I know it's a, uh, it doesn't, doesn't sound like a good deal, but it, it's important. It's important work. It really is. Um, so that when we talk about risk factors for Alzheimer's disease, by far the biggest known risk factor is age. 90-95% of all cases of Alzheimer's disease occur in the population that's 65 and older, and as you age past 65, you're, the, it increases, the, the prevalence increases. Not a lot we can do about that, <laughs> right? Um, family history uh, does make a difference. Um, there is some genetics I can tell you about, although that's a, that's a really complicated topic, but I'll, I'll try and clarify it for you a little. So family history works in about the same way as some other diseases do. You know, diseases run in families. So some families have breast cancer, some families have diabetes or heart problems or, or whatever. And Alzheimer's disease is the same. Um, if you have a family history of a parent or a sibling, then that's more statistically significant. Other relatives, it's not as statistically significant. But a parent or a sibling, they estimate like two, two and a half times increased risk factor. Um, there are genetic components to Alzheimer's disease, but it's it's very complicated and it's not it's not direct. So um, in the news recently was Angelina Jolie, the actress, and she has that the, a mutation of a certain gene that pretty much predetermined her for breast cancer and it runs in her family and she had the response that she did to that. Alzheimer's disease is just not that, it's just not that clear. They've located at least 15 genes, 15, that contribute 
to the process of beta amyloid and tau protein and all of the pathology that's going on in the brain. So it's probably a combination of, of little contributions from genetics and also lifestyle choices. They're finding out more and more that how someone lives over the long term in their life um, makes a big difference. It, it definitely increases your prevalence, increases or decreases your prevalence for developing Alzheimer's or a dementia when you're older, um, when you're 65 and older. There is one gene, um, it's called the APO gene, it's A-P-O-E, and there are, in the human population, there are three variants of this gene. There's E2, E3, and E4. E2 is rare in human beings and it's protective against Alzheimer's disease. If you have E2, you're protected. You're, you have a much lower prevalence of Alzheimer's disease and there's actually um, a population of people in Finland who are, have a high preval higher prevalence than normal of E2 and they have a very low prevalence of Alzheimer's disease. But most people have E3. E3 is the most common variant of this, and you have two copies, right? One from each parent. E3 is neutral. It's not protective or, or you know, has a higher prevalence. E4, which about a quarter of the population has, is an E4 carrier, gives a higher risk factor for Alzheimer's. It's not deterministic. So lifestyle strategy does come in here. That They are discovering that um, certain lifestyle strategies for brain health, which we'll talk about, can reduce the risk factor across the board, but also for E4 carriers. But it does definitely hold a higher risk factor, anywhere from 8 to 12 times higher. Um, head traumas, and you know, it's been in the news lately, the whole NFL and, and the, you know, repeated head trauma and problems with dementia in the NFL players, so head trauma definitely makes a difference. And then the biggest risk factors other than that, so the first three there we can't do anything about. We're aging and we have the family we have, <laughs> and that's that, right? So it's, it's the, the last ones that we can, we can make some, some choices about how we live and how we treat our bodies, and particularly our heart, and, and what that means for our brain, and particularly Heart disease, hypertension, high cholesterol, diabetes, these things unmanaged are the high, some of the highest risk factors other than age, are the biggest risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. So by addressing these, you don't take away, you don't delete your risk factor, but you can reduce it. So the, the general message here is when you're thinking about lifestyle strategies for a healthy brain, and this is good for all of us, and it's also good, this is good advice for someone who already has a diagnosis, if you have someone in your life that already has a diagnosis, eating well and exercising and doing these things is, it will help them maintain a, a higher function longer. But the basic connection is what is good for the heart is good for the brain. So the, the, um, the average adult brain is about three pounds, and that's, not very big, right? And even for a small person, that's not a big percentage of your body weight. But that three pound brain uh, consumes a quarter of all blood flow. Every beat of the heart, a quarter of the blood goes to feed the brain. The, the artery and vessel system in the brain is unbelievable. If you've ever seen a brain, it's, <laughs> it's amazing. 
it is amazing. So there's a direct connection between the health of your heart and the health of your brain. And that's why those biggest risk factors were hypertension and, and um, you know, diabetes and blood pressure and, and weight and all of these things because they directly impact your heart and that directly impacts the health of your brain. And this is particularly over a lifetime, um, particularly from middle age on. Not necessarily younger adults, although I, I would say start as soon as possible, but um, particularly for middle age, there's been a lot of studies on the connection between how someone's health is and their lifestyle in middle age and then having a higher prevalence for risk of dementia or Alzheimer's when they're at the age of risk at 65 or older. So first, you just want to manage your numbers. If these, if blood pressure, if weight, cholesterol, diabetes, if all these things are managed, that, that reduces or takes away the risk factor that would be involved there. And it's really about eating a heart-healthy diet. And I've listed some things here, you know, antioxidants are known in, in diet research um, to be very good for the heart, very good in general. Um, if, you have any, if you have any conditions, you'd want to talk to your doctor. Yes? What's the big deal on kale? I know. It is and vitamin the, K. <laughs> it's, the new, it's the newest thing. It's everywhere. It is. I love kale. But yeah, but which way you go with it? That's the question. What do you mean? Just that. I don't know which way to think. Do I eat a lot of kale or no kale? No kale, they say, but kale is, kale is a factor, but I can't figure out. Well, it's supposedly good for you. Um, it's a cruciferous, cruciferous vegetable, so is Brussels sprouts, broccoli. Oh, yeah, the goodies. Cabbage. <laughs> <laughs> Your favorites. They're just, it's, it's known to be a, a really good food for you. Um, one thing that gets a lot of attention, not only in the media, but in research that they do with the, in, you know, where they try and measure the impact of diet on health in general, particularly heart health and, and brain health, is the Mediterranean diet. Um, it's, it, in studies, it's associated with long life, a lower risk of cancer and cardiovascular mortality, and they're starting to um, study and associate it more and more with neurodegenerative diseases. This makes sense because if it, if it helps the heart, it helps the brain. Um, and it, this, this diet is characterized by high consumption of vegetables, fruits, beans, cereals. Um, olive oil is the predominant fat rather than butter or dairy. Um, moderate fish, uh, moderate dairy, and some wine there for you. So have wine with your kale. <laughs> but no scotch. <laughs> yeah. Why put scotch in there when you can have gin? <laughs> you have to eat some extra broccoli. <laughs> yeah. But I looked at a box of kale yesterday in the store, and uh -huh. it said use in, use in salads. It didn't say anything about cooking it. Mm. That's interesting. I um, I don't like it raw in salads. I only it's like it cooked. No, it is. You want to know the most fantastic way to have it? Just a little side here. Is you rip it up in, into pieces, and then you have it in a bowl, and, and you get olive oil on your hands, but don't pour the olive oil in there because kale wilts very. She knows what I'm talking oh, about. Oh yeah. Kale it's wilts so very easily. So put a little bit of olive oil on your hands, and then just brush that, you know, put your hands through the kale and put it on a cookie sheet and put it in a 350 oven for about seven minutes and it will crisp up like chips and it will melt in your mouth. 
And you can add like a little bit of garlic or Parmesan mm. cheese. I'm just saying. Yum yum. I'm just saying. Oh. It's oh fabulous. Come back tomorrow and we'll try. I usually put it in like maybe a minute or two before it's done, just to kind yeah. of like melt it in. Sprinkle mm. on. Yeah. And yeah. I just saute it too, but I I don't like it raw in salads. Yeah, I don't, I don't like, like it like that. So the other big um, part of brain health is, of course, exercise. And there's there's been a lot of research on diet and heart health and brain health. Um, but diet is, you know, it's not as easy a factor to show such direct relationships except over a long time, right? So you're, you know, what we can measure in research with diet is the diet that someone has followed for, uh, you know, many years. Exercise is different. There's been a lot of research on exercise, particularly with the aging population. There's just been a lot of um, research on exercise and longer life, and particularly brain health in dementia and outside of dementia, just you know, normal, cognitively normal, older adults anyways. Um, so the key to um, exercise is getting uh, consistent aerobic activity. That seemed to, in studies, that was more important than the intensity of aerobic activity. So you don't need to go out and, and train for a marathon. You need to get your heart rate going a little bit, whether it's a, you know, a brisk walk or whatever it is that you do, um, consistently in your life. That seemed to be more of the key. So rather than doing it a few times a month because your doctor told you to, <laughs> and you do it very intensely, and you do that for a few months and then you stop, it's more important to have it be a consistent part of your life to, to be active and to remain active. Um, the way that exercise works is first there's just the direct connection between exercise gives you a stronger heart and that gives you a, a stronger brain. I mean, there's just a direct connection there. Exercise uh, reduces cholesterol, it reduces stress and high blood pressure. Um, it's just really, you know, it's really good for you. But they're also finding in studies that exercise also increases brain volume. So as we age, a part of, you know, the normal age-related changes in our brain and our mind is that our, we lose brain volume, right? Our brains shrink a little bit, and that's normal. And exercise um, can increase brain volume, particularly in the hippocampus, and in the frontal lobes. And this was true in older adults as well. It's not just younger people. Uh, the brain is, is, is very plastic, as they say. It, it will respond at any age. And it also seems to help with the metabolic processing that the brain does. As you can imagine, the processes that the brain goes through are incredibly complicated. I mean, it's doing so many things. And these processes became more efficient when someone was a regular exerciser had, had, and had, a, had an active lifestyle. So exercise is really, um, I can't stress it enough, there's your diet, but, but just having a healthy, healthy, active lifestyle is really important in many ways, in many ways. And then there's what's called the softer, but they're very important, the softer aspects of mental engagement and social engagement and relationships and good sleep and all of that. We tend to focus the most on diet and exercise because those are easier to measure. They're more tangible. How many times did you work out? What did you actually eat? Um, and those are important. But they they know uh, through research and just through the way that we've lived and you know just from our wisdom of living that our relationships are very important for health 
and, and for a long life and for a good life. And that people that have good supportive relationships in their life tend to do better health-wise. Um, and that's true with Alzheimer's disease as well. Um, they have less stress, they're more connected to people. And then the mental engagement should include learning. So the crossword, the crossword puzzles are, are good, but if you're like my mother and you can do the New York Times crossword puzzle in three minutes, you're no longer learning. She can do it like that. She's been doing it. She's just been doing it all her life. She hates it when I tell her this. Um, it, it's about learning, so always be learning. So if you if you can do something with great ease, still do it because you probably enjoy it and that you've mastered that. But as far as mental engagement from a brain health, reducing your risk factor for Alzheimer's point of view, be engaged in learning and stretching your brain and making new connections in the brain. Um, what this is thought to do is create what's called cognitive reserve. So cognitive reserve is an actual state, it, um, and it's it's when the brain has additional or a lot of connections between brain cells, and that's how they communicate. So if there's a deficit or a problem in one part of the brain, someone with cognitive reserve can go around it. So if you think about like the, the amyloid plaques, think about that as a traffic jam in the brain. That's a traffic jam. It's jamming up all these brain cells. Someone with a high cognitive reserve has three or four ways to get around that. Someone without high cognitive reserve will be shut down by that traffic jam sooner. And they've seen this phenomenon with people that it tends to show up in people that have advanced education, but that's just a marker for someone who's probably very curious and is always learning. You don't have to have a, a, a PhD to have cognitive reserve. You just have to be a curious person that's always learning. But they're, they're finding um, that people that have cognitive reserve can not show the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease for years. But then they'll suddenly show symptoms. And when they do PET scans, the, brain, the, the pathology in their brain is far advanced from what they're showing in their symptoms. And the idea here is that they have cognitive reserve, they're able to respond with more flexibility and more resources in their brain to the deficits. So mental engagement and learning as a part of brain health, you really, you really should be learning and can, making those new connections, as well as doing things that you enjoy, because that's important emotionally and, and just doing that. But So Sudoku, which I hate. <laughs> talk. Here's a summary. If you remember nothing else, exercise is really important. Follow a heart-healthy diet. Stay curious. Stay engaged with your friends and your family. That's important. And all that helps to lower your stress. And stress, it's subtle, but stress has a big impact on our bodies and our brains, particularly if, if it's you know, chronic over a lifetime or, or many years. It really has a big impact. And I just want to close. I'm, oh, yeah. I'm kind of confused about that. What sort of stress ought to be reduced? Because half the things that are being described here as what we ought to do are pretty stressful, like 
learning something new, staying socially engaged, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Well, okay. Um, there's, good, there's good stress and bad stress. So there's an optimum level of stress. We need a certain amount of stress just to be engaged in life. So sure. learning something new. I, that stress, I don't, I don't feel is negative. I actually love it. But um, there's a point where you get frustrated Right? or you start to shut down, you start to ruminate, you start to get depressed, you start to get angry, um, you can't sleep as well, I that's see. when stress is too much stress. Um, but there is a certain amount of stress that's needed just to engage life and, and to be motivated, um, to be involved, to get things done. Okay, help. Yep. Okay. Um, and these are old dates, Take those I clearly did not go through my, my, <laughs> my PowerPoint before I came on today. Um, I just want to close by letting you know what the Alzheimer's Association does, and there's some material in the back, and there's a ton of material up front in our lobby if you haven't been through our lobby and, and everything that we do here. But we have a 24-7 helpline, um, trained clinician on the other end. You can find your local chapter if you live out of state or somewhere else. You can find education programs that are happening around you resources if you need home health care, if you whatever you need, um, we can get for you. If you call that number um, and you're in my area in New Hampshire, um, you will be referred to me the next day. I will know that you called and, and people on the ground will know that you called or my colleagues in the other office. We do education programs such as this one, but I do a lot of different types of education programs. I also do some for coping skills for caregivers. So if you or anyone that you know is living with, with Alzheimer's, I do a big one in June, a series right here. Um, I do one-on-one -on -one care consultations, which I mentioned in the, in the beginning, one-on-one -on -one with families. Again, all of these services are free to families. Um, we have an arm, I don't do this, but I have colleagues in Bedford and Massachusetts in Boston who work on public policy and try to influence legislation to help families in, in various ways that are living with Alzheimer's or dementia. And we have fundraising events and um, you know, the Alzheimer's Association nationally all of the chapters contribute to the national organization, and um, the national organization is the, the one of the largest funders of research for Alzheimer's disease. So that's a big part of our mission. We have programs that serve families that are living with Alzheimer's disease, which is what I do, and we fund researchers um, to try and find a cure. So that's it. Any other any questions or thoughts or? And also. Um, what we're doing here, um, there's brochures back there. There's some brochures in the front. The Aging Resource Center here is doing a tremendous amount. I'm just, a, I'm a small part of what's happening here. I, I do work with dementia and Alzheimer's, but we have people that um, do work with in all different categories of aging. Um, and we have education programs like this. We also have fun <laughs> programs as well. And you know, like writing your memoir and support groups. You want to review, if you would, the, please, the this thing on the study that's being done. Is it being done here? Is it being done in Boston? The, the big one that I mentioned is in Boston. It, it's at Harvard. Um, and what they're doing is they're, they want to get 3,000 participants. Um, they want roughly half of them to be preclinical which means they have beta amyloid plaques in their brain but are cognitively normal, and they want the other half to be to not have beta amyloid in their brain. So it's a control group. 
and they want to test these new drugs that they've been developing that they believe can clear out the beta amyloid. Um, so the idea here is that this preclinical population that has the beginning of the pathology but hasn't shown symptoms is the population to intervene on with, uh, you know, with the drugs um, that will stop or, or significantly delay the disease process. So it's very important. Someday we might all be taking. Someday, yeah, so, so what may happen is that someday in the future, they have these drugs that if you haven't shown symptoms yet, can they stop the disease process or significantly delay it. And everyone starting at 60 or 65 will just start getting these cerebral spinal fluid or PET scans. They'll just be a, and just see. And if you do have beta amyloid starting to build up, they'll give you the drugs. That may be how they eventually manage this disease. But that's, they're very excited about it. And there's, there's several throughout the country um, that are going on. So they, they want to test out these drugs. Hopefully something will come of it. I have a question. What are your feelings on luminosity? It's advertised everywhere to do your brain exercises. Yeah. Is there anything to that? You know, I don't know that there's a lot of research on it, um, but it can't hurt. (laughs) It can't hurt. I mean, if you're learning and you're stretching your brain and, and, you know, your mind and your, um, that can't hurt you. I think the only way that it hurts is if people think that it's doing something for them that it's not, mm-hmm. and then they don't take care of other factors in their life because they're doing that, so that takes care of it. Um, it should be a part of a, a whole healthy lifestyle, but. Just curious. Yeah. I hear it advertised mm-hmm. every Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there anything yeah, going to Yeah. No, if you're just racing through it, yeah. it's probably not doing much for you, but um, if you're really, if it's challenging you, can't be bad for you. I just find it's boring. <laughs> I would rather just learn something, you know, read a book and learn something new yeah. um, than go through those exercises. But to each their own. If that works for you, then do it. Would you go back to the vascular dementia? Uh-huh. Well, that's a, that's a blood flow problem. Those are mini strokes happening in the brain. Um, and they build up over time and they damage brain matter. And so wherever in the brain it has built up is where you'll start to see cognitive symptoms. It is progressive, but it, um, it, has, a very, it, it has a very different and distinct uh, trajectory than Alzheimer's disease. So Alzheimer's disease is called insidious onset where it just starts very slowly and then it'll start to show symptoms and then it just starts to diminish down and it's just implacable. I mean, it just it just moves, it just keeps going. Whereas vascular dementia um, is typically in what's called fits and starts. So there'll be, um, the damage will, will build up in a part of the brain and there'll be sudden symptoms, like there's sudden deficits. And then the person, you'll respond to that, the person will stabilize for a while and then there'll be another, you know, another event of, of more symptoms. Um, I've seen MRIs of someone that, that's had vascular dementia that was rather advanced. And where the brain matter is damaged on an MRI, it'll show up as white spots. So you'll see a, a picture of the brain and, and it'll be like white spots. And this person had white spots all throughout the brain uh, of very <coughs> varying sizes. So that's vascular dementia. <coughs> and now that's directly, that's heart. That's a you know, direct connection from heart to brain. Anything else?
Thank you. Yes, well, thanks for coming in. And it's still snowing out, you guys. I'm going to have to slow down at all.